Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. My newest guest is Ambassador Yvette Stevens, Sierra Leone's former permanent representative to the United Nations and international organizations in Geneva. She's the recent recipient of the Imperial College London's Distinguished Alumni Award and is an executive in residence at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. We talk about Africa, women, engineering, and energy, and whether men, or at least some men, are afraid of powerful and intelligent women. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. It's so easy to say of guests who've enjoyed a long and varied life with professional careers spanning more than five, going on six decades, that he or she has done it all. Those three words, done it all, roll off the tongue all too easily, and I've had the privilege of interviewing quite a few such people over the past ten years of this radio show. However, my guest today is someone particularly special. She has a list of eye-watering achievements, and she carries her distinction so lightly that in the ten years or so that I've known her, we met in the midst of the Ebola epidemic that hit her country so cruelly, I simply had no idea of her long list of accomplishments. Accomplishments for her country, Sierra Leone, for her continent, Africa, for her professions, and I use the plural as she's both an engineer and a top-ranking diplomat, and for women. She was recently awarded by her alma mater, the Imperial College London Distinguished Alumni Award, and she's been a recipient of the Sierra Leone Women's Women of Excellence Award, the citation read, in recognition of high standards of excellence in engineering, science, and technology. My guest today is Ambassador Yvette Stevens, formerly Sierra Leone's permanent representative to the United Nations and international organizations in Geneva, and nowadays an executive in residence at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. We're chatting together in the warm and friendly Hotel Warwick, Geneva. Welcome to the McKay Interview, Ambassador, and thank you for making time to talk to me and our listeners. It's good to see you again, Michael, and thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, we've known each other for quite a few years, so please may I call you Yvette. Please don't. Thanks. Now, there are many things that I want to discuss with you today because I've been remiss in inviting too few women and too few Africans on my show, and I'm trying to rectify that in this new year ahead of us, starting right now. I want to talk about your experience as an engineer in your country and in Africa and even further abroad where I imagine that you were often the first and only woman and African woman in a room full of men. And I want to hear your views on energy needs and energy provisions in your country and on the continent of Africa and how those needs will be satisfied in the current feverish mood which raises sustainability to the zenith of achievements in order to alleviate the so-called climate crisis and climate emergency. And I want to hear your views, lastly, on what women and men need to do in Africa to capitalize on the promise of a continent rich in natural resources, rich in youth, yet poor in so many other basic and material ways. I read somewhere, for example, and I'm sure you know these statistics by heart, that the continent, the Africa is with the youngest population worldwide, 40% of the population aged 15 years or younger. And what does that mean for Africa's future? So there are many things to discuss. Firstly, let's begin with how you started. You surprised me the other day when you told me that you did your graduate studies in electrical engineering at university in Moscow in the Russian language back in the mid-1960s. That's the height of the Cold War before going on to do your MSc at the renowned Imperial College in London. Why Moscow? 
That's a long way north of Sierra Leone. How did that happen, Ambassador or Yvette? What was that experience like in those days, and why engineering, especially specializing in electrical machines and power systems? Well, it's a long story, but I give you a short version. Okay, please. <laughs> I did well in science at high school. I got fascinated with scientific achievements and spent vacations in the town library devouring books on science, including space science. In 1961, when Yuri Gagarin went to space, I really got very much enchanted with space science, and I naively decided that that's what I wanted to do. And, and um, so when I finished my A-levels, in 1965, it was the first time that the Soviet, the then Soviet government, was offering scholarships to Sierra Union to study in Russia. And I thought, <laughs> there goes, you know, I am going to apply for a scholarship, much to the dissatisfaction of my teachers, who were mainly from UK, from the UK and yeah. Canada. Yeah. But then I pursued this, and of course, I landed up in the USSR. It was difficult. I first got a shock trying to learn the Russian language. <laughs> can imagine. Yeah. But then I got, I got around it, and I did very well studying the language and then did the entrance exam. And, but the first thing that when I wanted to do space science, I was told in no uncertain terms, you know, these scholarships, subject scholarships, are to assist your country in development, and there's no way we see space science in the mix. So then I thought, and I thought, oh, yeah, well, I also liked electricity, electrical engineering, and then I thought that was my second option, but then I saw the need, I saw the possibility of benefiting my country through um, studying electrical engineering. And just briefly, just for those people who are younger and listening to this mm. and maybe not so familiar with the USSR and the Cold War, what was Russia's interest in those days, or the USSR's, we shouldn't say Russia, yeah. the USSR's interest in promoting themselves to West Africa and other countries, just briefly? Yes, because I think that was when they had the inroad to open diplomatic relations in Africa. And um, I believe they, it, they opened a number of diplomatic missions in, 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 in Africa in those days, yeah, in the 60s. And... Um, and their interests, of course, we all know there was this competition with the West. Russia also wanted to have its own, you know, friends, if you like. Absolutely. In yeah. Africa. And this was in this context that they were offering scholarships. And you were able to take advantage of that. And I was able to take advantage of that. Now, as just speaking now with your engineer's hat on, uh, can one generalize about the main tasks that need to be tackled by engineers in the 46 countries of sub-Saharan Africa? Or, or what mm -hmm. are the obstacles, or is that just too big a piece of geography? No, I do think that Africa needs its engineers. The sad part of this is that Africa has many, sub-Saharan Africa, have many qualified in engineers who are outside, providing services in Saudi Arabia, in the UK, in the US. They have not gone back and there's not sufficient um, 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 effort to attract them back to Africa. But why does Africa need its engineers? We all know that Africa is, remains, Africans remain poor, even if the continent itself is rich in natural resources. One of the problems is that Africa depends on export of its commodities, primary commodities. And lately, Africa has gone on to look at industrialization, and it's become a focus, a priority of the African Union, industrialization. But to industrialize and to, to be able to 
to transform the primary commodities, to add value to them, they do need to have the knowledge and expertise of engineers. They also need to have infrastructure in place because recently the free trade uh, agreement came into force in Africa. But within African countries, um, transport tra um, uh, is not, it's not easy. They need to, you need to have the infrastructure to transport goods and, 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 and also you need to have the infrastructure, the energy infrastructure. Because if you do not have energy, you can forget to talk about uh, industrialization. These industries that you want to set up, for instance, if you want to set up um, industries to, trans to transform um, um, iron ore into steel, you are not talking about small quantities of energy. You need that energy, and you need the experts too that can work to put things in place. So, so tell me, mm -hmm. sorry to interrupt, but tell me a little bit more about these specific energy needs in some of these countries. Again, maybe mm -hmm. I'm asking you to generalize unfairly, but show me what progress has been made in satisfying. You've got these vast rivers in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, you've got uh, fuel, oil, etc. So mm -hmm. what exactly is going on today in these countries yeah. to improve the situation yes. on I, energy? Yes, I think that basically, and we're all now faced with the climate crisis, and we all have to... To, to take steps to avoid what is going to, what is promised to be doom, particularly for African countries, even though they have contributed the least to greenhouse gas emissions, they, we are going to suffer the most, one, because we cannot, we cannot adapt ourselves, and also because we are going to be helpless. So we need to contribute to it. Nevertheless, we also need to uh, take into account the energy needs. Now, according to the um, International Energy Agency, um, Africa, 600 million people in, Af in sub-Saharan Africa lack access to electricity. 600 million. 600 so million. two United States of Americans. Yes. Yeah. Another 900 million do not have access to clean energy. So they depend on firewood and whatever. So there is a big task to be achieved in Africa. And it's happening just at the time when we are all being called upon to, to, to look at clean energy, to consider to, to, to um, um, adapt, adopt new energies. Africa has the resources for clean energy, but it needs to exploit those resources. For instance, it is the Inga Dam in Democratic Republic of, of Congo is, can provide electricity for the whole continent. Seriously, for the whole continent? For the whole continent, but, yeah. but, but, but it needs to be developed. And even, where, even though we are being told that now, you know, um, um, renewable energy generation is comparable to using fossil fuels, nevertheless, it's when you look at the long-term cost. The thing about renewable energy is that the costs are up front. Mm. If you want to develop your hydropower resources, if you want to put your solar um, energy, to use your solar energy, you need to have that upfront cost. And when you as an engineer talk about long term, mm -hmm. what is that, 20, 30 years, 50 years, well, roughly? Well, for, for solar renewable energy, they're talking about 30 years. 30 years, Also, okay. yeah, yeah, talking about 30 years. So if you do the calculations over 30 years, you can say, yes, you know, renewable energy, you can even say it's cheaper, mm. but you need that upfront cost. And this is where Africa is going to find that it would have problems in doing so. 
So again, um, yes, Africa recognized, but if you look at uh, um, um, what Sub-Saharan Africa, and you look at um, the, I, want, I don't want to mention the Sustainable Development Goal, I don't know that, on yes. Goal 7, yeah. which uh, relates to access to energy. And, and in that, it is acknowledged in the, in the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda that some countries would still have to look at fossil fuels because, let's face it, um, the fossil fuel use in Africa is 10 times, is one-tenth of the average fossil fuel use around the world. One-tenth. So, one-tenth. Yeah. So, again, you know, there should be some accommodating because there's no way Africa is going to be able right, by the deadlines given to reach net zero in terms of when you look at, for instance, when I did a study in my country on use of fossil fuels, most of it was in, in, in cars, in vehicles. Now, if you are going to tell me that all the, uh, the vehicles are going to be replaced by electric vehicles in, a, in, in, in countries where people can ill afford to even run what they have now, let alone to, to, to throw it all away and buy electric cars, that for me to see, to me seems like a difficult thing to achieve. Yeah, we're going to examine mm -hmm. a bit more carefully, specifically electricity, mm -hmm. um, Yvette, but just let me remind the, the listeners that are, my guest today is Ambassador Yvette Stevens, a former permanent representative of Sierra Leone to the United Nations and international organizations, Geneva, and currently executive in residence at the Geneva Center for Security Policy, and we're in Geneva. In fact, you spoke in a recent TED talk mm -hmm. about access to electricity being deemed a human right. Now, though a laudable aim, and God knows there's a great need, as you've just mm -hmm. explained, but how would you go about making it yes. a human right? What difference would it, what difference would it make practically if mm -hmm. it became a human right? Yeah. In the TEDx talk, I posed it as a question because okay. I know that there are many countries that do not even consider the socioeconomic rights as, as human rights. But when you look at how indispensable energy is to achieve anything at all in this day and age, you would see that there is a need. And when you think about the numbers of people that do not have access to electricity and are therefore de deprived what is their right? So I think that um, 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 if you look at that, I would say electricity in itself, I mean, is, should be considered a human right. Now, what does it take? Well, what does it take and what difference would it make? Yeah. I, I'm interested yeah. in okay. that. Yeah. Okay. It takes what it takes. It needs, you need a lot of advocacy because, as I told you, there are many people, there are many of the, in the human rights community that will not buy into it readily. But I think there's one breakthrough in one, one other area in terms of access to clean environment. This was something that um, 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 civil society and everybody struggled for years. But just at the last Human Rights Council last year, it was acknowledged that access to a clean environment is a human right. It was put in the books. Acknowledged. Right? Acknowledged. Okay. acknowledged. Well, and in, in United Nations speak, what does acknowledge actually mean? Okay. All right. Okay. It goes, okay, the Human Rights Council passed a resolution. By the way, no, nobody voted against that. Okay. So, of course, the next step is to go to the General Assembly because the Human Rights Council reports to the General Assembly. Right. And then if the General Assembly passes it, then it will, get, it will happen. Thank you. But to say what difference does it make, and I think civil society usually has a big role to play because the advocacy that is required, sometimes you do not get it for member states. And civil society have been known 
through their advocacy to achieve a lot, uh, to cause a lot to be achieved within, within the UN system. But making it a human rights would mean that governments would be responsible and accountable. They would have to report on it. And that makes a difference because one thing I noticed from my um, participation in the human rights because no countries want to be called to book in terms of its human rights record. I see. Even the That's worst, a great incentive then. Yes. Yeah. Even the worst human rights abusers, when it comes to the Human Rights Council, they would fight nail and tooth not to be named and shamed. It's uncomfortable. Yes. Okay. So I think that would help if that could be there. Then countries would be, would, be, would be asked to report on why they are not making the steps that are required to make sure that people have access to electricity. Thank you. So let's pursue this energy a little bit mm -hmm. more. When you view energy needs in Africa through the lens of your experience, mm -hmm. how does it then square with all the grand speeches and pledges made by experts and advocacy groups, we talk to them, mm -hmm. about how reliable supplies and affordable energy will be needed to provide in, in, need to be provided in the immediate future. Are you persuaded by the arguments, even mm -hmm. commitments, towards net zero coming out of the mouths of some governments and adversary groups, usually mm -hmm. from the rich and comfortable north? How would Africa cope without recourse to fossil fuel use in order to achieve basics like the widespread distribution of reliable electricity, not mm -hmm. to mention water? Just tell us a little bit more about how you see that. Yes. I think if you notice... In all the discussions, I mean, very few, if any at all, maybe one or two African, sub-Saharan African countries have made commitments to net zero. I didn't know. I didn't know the detail now. Yes, because they haven't, I mean, they haven't said no, but they haven't made commitments. Right. And the reason for this is that because, and as I said, the Sustainable Development Goal does make some provision for fossil fuel to be adopted by some of the countries. But... Um, the net zero is, of course, it's desirable because, as I said earlier, you know, um, climate change is going to affect um, sub-Saharan African countries the most. But um, this reaching net zero creates a dilemma for sub-Saharan African countries, which is how to lift people out of poverty and navigate net zero transition simultaneously. Um, the vast resources would be required, vast resources. The current commitments do not even measure, do not meet what would be required. And even those commitments are only commitments, we know from experience, that commitments made sometimes in the international community are never met. Like these pledges, yeah. which are never actually Yes, paid. which are never. So, I mean, you know, um, um, countries announce commitments and that goes in the news and that's it. And then you go back and when you start to look at it, when I was um, working as director for Africa and Depart Department of Economic and Social Affairs, we went back and looked at some of these pledges. And I could tell you something, that many of these pledges are not met. They have gone on record when they announced, but whether or not they are met in the future is another question. So again, I am, um, if indeed Africa is to commit itself to net zero, it needs a lot than what is available in terms of resources, financial resources. Okay. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but mm -hmm. are you saying that um, Africa will have to continue to use fossil fuels to supplement its energy requirements? Well, that's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the Sustainable Development Goal 7 
makes provision for that because let's face it, even if they were to continue as they're doing now, they're only making a little dent in terms of net, net um, um, carbon dioxide emissions. But the climate conference in Paris said the net zero, this is why I'm saying that yes, Africa, Africans are committed, but the net zero, uh, yes, but it's still there. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, but look, that's fascinating, I think, and I think there's room there for another discussion mm -hmm. in greater detail, because obviously the story is going to run and run. But let's finish our conversation by talking more about women in mm -hmm. Africa, and men too, but mainly women. Africa's had a has had and currently has many outstanding female political leaders. I mean, just a few, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf of Liberia, Agnes Monique, Osman Belpur of Mauritius, Joyce Hilda Banda, Malawi, um, Saleh Walk Zedway of uh, Ethiopia, and there, there are many others. Grasa Machel of Mozambique, never a president, but still hugely influential. They are all women in politics. You probably know many of them yourself. But having been in the UN and international organization world for many years, what has been your observation and experience of women's role apart from politics, in business, for example, in academia, mm -hmm. in science and technology, and in their societal and community roles? Tell, mm -hmm. tell me a bit more yeah. about that. Um, it is interesting that you, could, you, sh you should quote women in politics, because for me in Africa, politics is the one area where women are struggling to, to, to actually comp com compete or actually play the role that they should be playing in politics. Because I was being lazy. As Google, <laughs> I Googled, I Googled, I yeah. was being lazy. <laughs> because, because even though women are active in political parties, it's very difficult to get the political parties to put women forward. I see. You could say this is not only Africa, but in Africa I think it's even more difficult. Uh, and, and, and therefore the only woman amongst the name you ha names you have there, who was elected as president as Ellen Johnson said. The only woman, really? Yes, okay. yes. Yeah. I mean, elected woman president. But again, women are in every sphere of life. If you look at academia in the, in the arts, women, are, women actually, could, in some cases, could exceed the number of, of, um, of men in, in academia at the arts. But where we, we, there's still a lack in is in science, in academia, but I think one must a few women who have excelled. For instance, the Nobel Prize win, Peace Prize winner for 2004, Wangari Matai, is African, and she has fought for environment. She set up the uh, a movement that that fought for um, 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 saving the environment, um, safeguarding the environment, to planting of trees, and she is one notable um, um, African woman. Say her name again, please. Wangari Matai. Matai, okay, mm -hmm. thanks. Yeah. And then, okay, and then also, if you look at um, at entrepreneur, for instance, I will just give you two because they're quite a number. There's um, Forlorn Shaw Alakia of Nigeria, a self-made billionaire in woman. What, in what field? Is she in a particular business? Yes, yeah, she was doing, I mean, she's gone into oil now, but she oh, was, yeah. uh, you know. And then, of course, there's the Isabel de Santos of Angola. And who has also done very well as I a see. woman entrepreneur. I see. So just to name a, a couple, and um, again, but I think also I wouldn't, f I wouldn't stop, I wouldn't end this without saying the example that Rwanda has set in, to go back to politics. Women, Rwanda has the world record for women in parliament of 61.2 percent, higher than any country in the world. Parliamentary representatives. Parliamentary, uh, yes, and guess what? Rwanda is one of the countries that is making the greatest strides 
in terms of socioeconomic development in Africa. Okay, and I don't mean this in a flippant way, I mean it's a serious question. Do you think that men, or at least some men, are frightened of powerful women, especially in Africa? And is there a different dynamic mm -hmm. or power balance between the sexes than in, say, Europe or in the United States? Or is this just too complex a question for such a short interview? Either? Yes, I think it's a complex question, <laughs> but I'll just touch on it. Okay. I would agree with you, yeah. yes. But I think women especially women who are confident, because women would not, women, I think there's something intrinsic in women that they would make sure that they, are, they you know, they would get things under control, they would know their stuff, they would, because they do not come into these situations with half knowledge, usually. They know that they have, in order to be able to be recognized, they have to excel, they have to work two, if not three times as much as the men, to be able to excel. So women are, who are in, 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 in positions of responsibilities in Africa do make sure that they excel. And this is what's usually when they meet with, their, with male counterparts who do not excel as much as they do, then they, of course, they hold them in, in fear, if you like. But I think it's, a long, it's, a, it's something that could take a lot of discussion. I think, yes. I think you're choosing your words very carefully, but I can say as a man that men, are, men yeah. do a lot of bluffing and, <laughs> uh, and, and seem to get away with it. Look, Yvette, in your long career, you must have been regarded as a role model by many aspiring students, engineers, and diplomats. What advice do you give the young, especially young women, who are on their way up about how they should set their sights or calibrate their own personal compass for their lives ahead? Yes. I would say to them, go for it. Believe in yourself and aim for the skies. Um, another thing is that know your stuff. Make sure you know your stuff. Um, for women, I would say that when you do know your stuff and you really come out with it, you are respected by men. Don't be intimidated by, intimidated by them. The best way to win the support is to beat them at their own game, so to speak. My experience has taught me this. But I would not complete this by saying that governments have a responsibility too to develop the youth in terms of education and training, education and training that is relevant to development, that will make sure they get employment at the end of the it, and also to make sure that when private sector comes in, they do train um, um, look, the youths to be able to take over from them. And you speaking from experience that this isn't happening sufficiently? Um, no, I don't think it's happening. It's happening sufficiently. I think that many of the of the of the private sector come in, especially if you look particularly at the Chinese projects that we have a lot of in Africa now, and they come with everybody up to the driver, and they do not train the local young people who are there who could their training could bring benefits to the countries because when the when the investors leave they would have the youth trained to assume some of the responsibilities that were taken over that are taken up by the nationals from those companies that came from overseas. So these overseas companies, including the Chinese, they bring in their own laborers, do they? Yes, they bring in, I mean, many countries have uh, what they call a local content policy, but they don't enforce it. It means that any company coming in should make sure that a certain percentage of the, of the people they employ, even if they need training to do so, should be nationals. But this is not respected. I see, well. That's a very important point, and I think something that we should maybe come back to on another occasion in terms of uh, development programs with teeth, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yvette, thanks 
many thanks for answering all my questions so clearly. It's been, for me, a most rewarding conversation. My guest today has been Ambassador Yvette Stevens, former permanent representative of Sierra Leone to the United Nations and international organizations here in Geneva, and currently executive in residence at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. Thanks again, Yvette. Uh, thanks, Michael. Great to see you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.